Better? Yeah, okay, right. Um, yeah, I am going to share something with you before I start today, um, because normally when I come up here, I am really confident. Not in a cocky kind of way, but because this feels so comfortable to preach. But today, I'm going to stand up here and be completely vulnerable and admit I feel really wobbly. Um, some of you will know, and some of you won't know, that my mum passed away um, just over a week ago. And it's her funeral next week. And I spoke to Mark, and I said to Mark, shall I still preach? Shall I still get up there? And Mark said, well, your mum would want you to carry on doing what you're passionate about and what you love. And I prayed about it, and I prayed about it, and I really prayed about it. And God said, in your weakness, I will be made strong. So I'm just sharing my vulnerability with you this morning. Um, and the other thing is, I used to practice my sermons and ideas on my mum, and I haven't, so you're all guinea pigs this week. <laughs> so I just felt I should, um, yeah open about where I'm coming from. We're doing um, a talk at the moment, talks on, on, on the different names and the different titles of God. And the title that I was given today was God the Father. It was that third of the Trinity that's the paternal element. And I thought, like I always do, where do you start with that? Where do I start talking with that? And I was drawn to John. And in John chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And Jesus says to his disciples, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does. So that raised questions. Questions for me. What does the Father do? What does Jesus copy? So I processed it a bit, and, I, and how I'm going to do this talk today is I'm going to look at the Old Testament, because I feel we see some real paternal characteristics of God there. I'm going to look at what the Father does. I'm then going to fast forward to the New Testament, and I'm going to look at what Jesus does. Does Jesus copy what he sees the Father doing. And then I'm going to fast forward to September 2019 and I'm going to contextualise it. What should we be doing? What should we be copying? So I'm going to look at the Old Testament and I'm going to look at the relationship between Moses and God the Father. And the reason I'm doing that is, as a quick overview, God goes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, you're going to be my chosen nation. Through you, you're going to have descendants. I'm going to, the saviour of the world is going to be born. And, and, then, and then Abraham has Isaac. And then Isaac has Jacob, who's renamed Israel, who has 12 sons. One's got a fancy coat. Goes off to Egypt. They all follow him. And they're living in this land called, called Goshen in Egypt. And the, and the reality is that 400 years passes. And the, 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 the Israelites are living there, but the Pharaoh's a bit worried because the numbers have grown, and the numbers have grown, and the Pharaoh says, right, we're going to start killing the firstborn. 
And we have the Moses story when Moses is born. And God uses Moses almost to birth the nation out, quite literally, when they walk through the sea that's split in half, it is like they are being birthed out and they're taken into the desert. And basically God, he, he, he teaches them a bit like a father teaches a child to take first steps and then walk a bit and then what's right and what's wrong and what you can touch and what you can't touch. And, what you, and he teaches them all these things. And we see this real kind of paternal mannerisms of God And so I thought that's a really good way to look at the fatherly side of our Lord and see what it is and how he acts and what Jesus copies. So we're going to look at two bits in Exodus to begin with. Exodus chapter 32, which is the scene of the golden calf. And Exodus chapter 33, which is Moses having a bit of a a quiet time with God. So I'm going to read you Exodus chapter 32. Just verses 7 through to 14. So basically Moses is up the mountain. He's having pina coladas with God. He's having a good time. And they're having a chat. And they're drawing up the Ten Commandments. And there's a bit of, a bit of PA work going on. And then the Lord says to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you have brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. They have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf and they have bowed down to it and they have sacrificed to it and they have said, these are your gods, Israel. This is who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone. In fact, I think God would have shouted, no, leave me alone, so that my anger can burn against them and that I can destroy them and then I can make you into a great nation. So Moses had this opportunity to kind of take the glory. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord, his God, and he begs. Lord, he says, why should your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them out off the face of the earth? Relent, do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, Israel to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I will give your descendants all of this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And then the Lord relented, and he did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. So Moses begs God, Please don't wipe them out. Please, please, please be merciful. And God says, okay. Moses then wanders down the mountain himself and sees for himself what God could see at the top of the mountain. Moses approached the camp. He saw the calf and he saw them all dancing. And Moses anger burned. 
He threw the tablets out of his hands, broke them into pieces at the foot of the mountain, and he took the calf that the people had made. He burned it in the fire, then he ground it to powder, scattered it in the water, and he made the Israelites drink it. The reality is Moses had gone up the mountain and when God could see what was going on, Moses had gone, please don't, please don't harm them. Please, please show mercy. And then when Moses went down the mountain and he saw with his own eyes what was going on, he had the biggest tantrum. He chucked the tablets on the floor. They were pretty important, you know. God had just dictated those, shouldn't have done that. Chucked them on the floor. He gets the calf. Pestle and mortar style, grinds it down, puts it in water, makes them drink it. He's angry. He's not showing mercy. You know that saying um, that you say in revenge when someone's upset you and, oh, let them have a taste of their own medicine? Well, I'm not pointing the finger, but I think Moses had a lot to do with that. But the reality is, God the Father had shown mercy. Moses didn't follow that template. In the next chapter, we then have another moment when things have settled a bit. And again, Moses is having some time with God. And they're, I don't know, having some Club Tropicana time. I don't know what it was. And Moses turns around to God and he says... Show me, your mercy, show me your glory. And I thought, that's quite brave. Show me your glory. He says to God, you know, what, what can I do for you? And he says, God, show me your glory. And I thought about it and I thought, quite a cheeky statement, Moses. Let's just recap on Moses' life. Go back to the burning bush. You know, he finds this, this burning bush that has a conversation back with him tells him to take his sandals off, he's on holy ground, he knows it's God, it's the mobile phone of the day. He has his conversation with a bush. That is pretty glorious. That is God manifest supernaturally. And the reality is that Moses says, show me your glory. All of the plagues that Moses would have witnessed firsthand, I wrote them down because I can't remember them to be honest. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, firstborn. How powerful that would be to have witnessed that firsthand. To have seen the incredible power, sovereignty of God displayed manifestly in the elements around you. And not just to see the power of those. If you took, you know, the livestock, to see the Egyptian livestock fall, but the Israelites' livestock be okay. To see the, the boils come on the Egyptians, but not on the Israelites. Like, that is powerful. That is God showing he is sovereign, he is glorious, what he says goes. Think about the sea when they got to the sea. Approximately two million plus people are with him at this point. And they get to the sea and he drops his staff and the waters part. 
And it says that they're walls of water. So we're talking Sea Life Centre. We're talking how amazing is that? And they walk through. What a display of God's glory and honour and sovereignty. The waters in the desert, they get there and Moses is like, Lord, we've got no water. There's a lot of people here, they're a bit thirsty and it's a little bit hot and it's a little bit dry. You know, he, he strikes a rock and the reality is something that must have been, I don't know, on a level of the Niagara Falls, you know, produces this a mass of water for all these people. How glorious a moment. You know, the manna and quail. Moses is there, they're also hungry, Lord. They also need a little bit of food. They wake up every morning, Deliveroo have been. There is quail everywhere, there is manna everywhere. Again, that is God saying, I am in charge. I am honourable, I am glorious, I am sovereign. But we have this moment where Moses is saying to God, chapter 33, verse 18, show me your glory. I mean, so cheeky, so cheeky. But God's answer is amazing. God says, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, proclaim my name, have mercy and have compassion. Because the reality is, that the Father's goodness, mercy, and compassion more glorious than a conversation with a burning bush that talks back. More miraculous than witnessing the plagues firsthand. His mercy and compassion are more amazing than watching a sea get split in half. His mercy and compassion and goodness are more fantastic than fountains of fresh water from nowhere in the desert. His mercy and compassion and love is more awesome than waking up every morning to the floor filled with food for two million people. So for God, the pinnacle is his mercy and his compassion and his love. So going back to what I said originally when Jesus said in John 5, I tell you the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. So does Jesus copy this compassion and mercy and love? Of course he does. Think of the woman caught in adultery. She was taken to him, she should have been stoned. The reality was that the law of the day was if she's caught in adultery, she should be stoned to death. We know that, it's in Deuteronomy, it's in Leviticus. That was the punishment. What does Jesus say? Let the first person cast the stone who has no sin. He shows her compassion and mercy and love. Think of the lost sheep. The reality is the sheep thinks the grass is greener over there and wanders off. A lot of us would think, well, fair enough, you deserve what you get. Jesus, no, I'm going after him. Compassion, love, mercy. Think of the disciples that he kind of took into his band of close friends. Mary Magdalene, a prostitute. A lot of people would have just kind of pushed her to one side. No, Jesus welcomes her in. 
shows her compassion, mercy and love. Levi, the tax collector, we think HMRC, but actually it was worse. It was HMRC and worse because they also added on their bit of VAT as well. They were, they were, they were well, yeah, they weren't very nice people. Jesus shows him compassion and mercy and love. All through his life, and that list could have gone on and on and on, but right up to Gethsemane, just before he's about to be taken and crucified. There's a guard. He has his ear chopped off. Does Jesus shout at him? Does he have a go at him? No. What does he do? He picks his ear up and he puts it back and he shows him compassion and mercy and love. Which brings me to the prodigal son, the verse that Jim so kindly read out. The reality is the prodigal son demands an early inheritance. And then he takes off. I think in scripture it says, for wild living. That's sex, drugs and rock and roll to you and me. He parties. He absolutely blows it. He ends up skint, hungry, no clothes, nowhere to live, working for somebody else, not doing a very good job. He goes back home, bank of mom and dad, also sound familiar. The reality is, he goes back home. Does he get the clip round the ear all he deserves? No. He's welcomed with compassion and mercy and love. I often think it's called the prodigal son, and we focus so much on the son. I mean, he plays a big part in the story, don't get me wrong. But if it was retitled the love of a father, would we look at it differently? Would we look at it differently? Would we focus more on his open heart and open arms? We see the Father's heart of God repeatedly echoed in the New Testament, in the people Jesus mingled with, in the parables, in the story. In the parables we see the Father's love revealed to us through God as a farmer in Mark 4, the parable of the sower. We see God as a builder in Matthew 7 with the wise and foolish builders. We see God as an architect in 1 Peter with living stones. But personally, I think that the prodigal son showing God as a father not only displays God's main beautiful character of his mercy and his compassion and his love, but his desire as a father to be reunited back with his kids, us. God won't force humans to love him. We've got free will and we will all make mistakes, me especially. Had a driving mistake this week, which I won't go into, but you know, we all get things wrong. But the bottom line is he's always there with open arms showing us compassion and mercy and love. The reality is we are called to be childlike in our acceptance of him, but mature in our living it out. We will beat the battles of this life with love. There's a saying, kill it with love. 
Because the reality is, when people fall out, revenge produces revenge, which produces revenge, which produces revenge, and it only goes one way. And the only way to stop that cycle is to show compassion and mercy and love, whether it's between spouses, siblings, faith groups, communities, countries. The only way to break the cycle is to copy Jesus, who copied the Father, and display compassion and mercy and love. For some people here, their earthly fathers may not have been the perfect template of a father's love. For some of us here, the pain and injustice received at the hands of our fathers makes it really hard to imagine that. And the irony is, for some of us, that compassion and mercy and love has to be reflected back mirror-like to our fathers. But the reality is, to respond to any form of pain or injustice with harmless love, well, that is the way of Jesus. That is the correct way. That is kingdom weaponry. That is living out the Sermon on the Mount. That is bringing heaven to earth. That is revealing the glory of God. That is the gospel. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, loving us so much that he sent his son to pay the price and show the ultimate compassion and mercy and love. That is our Father. Amen.